You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works, Volume 117 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Deeper Secrets of Human Evolution in the Light of the Gospels, 12 lectures translated by Christiana Bryan. This is Lecture 11, given in Berlin on the 21st of December, 1909, entitled The Christmas Tree, a Symbol. On this day, which ought to be a festival of consecration for us, it is only fitting that we vary our practice to the extent that we pause in our quest for knowledge and truth and instead contemplate the realm of feeling and empathy which is awakened and illumined by the light we receive from spiritual science. The festival now approaching once more is, for countless people, a festival of ensoulment, in the most wonderful sense of the word and in the context of our anthroposophical worldview, and is not a very ancient festival. What we call the Christian festival of Christmas was not celebrated in the years when Christianity was first making its appearance in the world. The first Christians did not celebrate any such Christmas. They did not celebrate the birth of Christ. Almost three centuries were to pass before a celebration of Christ's birth was marked within Christendom. In those first centuries when Christianity was coursing through the world, those experiencing the Christ impetus in their souls felt an inwardness that corresponded with their withdrawal from much that was taking place in external life around them in forms it had taken since ancient times and since the Christ impetus. A dark inkling arose in the souls of those early Christians that they should act to transform earthly matters, instigate new forms in a world transfused with a new feeling, new sentience, and above all new hope and confidence in human evolution. What was to surge forth to the very horizons of world existence was to take its starting point, we can even say literally, from a spiritual seed or kernel in earth's interior. We have often imagined the Roman catacombs where, sequestered from daily life, the first Christians celebrated the festivals of their hearts and souls. We placed ourselves spiritually in these places of devotion. Festivals of birth were not initially celebrated, apart from weekly Sunday festivals, in remembrance of the event on Golgotha. Also celebrated in those early times were the deaths of those who had, with deep feeling and exceptional enthusiasm, spoken of Golgotha, or who had taken significant and incisive action in the course of humanity's evolution, to the extent that they were persecuted by a world grown old. The death days of these martyrs, departed into spiritual life, were celebrated as humanity's birthdays by Christians in those early centuries. In those days the birth of Christ was likewise not celebrated, but the genesis of this festival of Christ's birth can show us how today we can rightly state Christianity was not suddenly founded with this doctrine or another, this procedure or another, 
to be perpetuated from generation to generation. But we may rightly recall Christ's saying that He is with us, that He fills all our days with His Spirit. When we feel ourselves filled with His Spirit, we may feel called upon to perpetuate a never-ending onward evolution of this Christian spirit. We are not called, especially through anthroposophical spiritual development, to preserve a rigidly unresponsive Christianity, but to generate a continually regenerating Christianity into the future, a Christianity that brings forth ever new wisdom and knowledge. We never speak of the once-existent Christ, but always of the eternally living Christ. And we may bring to mind the ever-living, ever-active Christ working within us, especially when speaking of the festival of Christ's birth. The Christians of the first centuries could feel newness impressing itself upon the whole organism of Christian evolution, and that they could themselves contribute what flowed into them out of Christ's Spirit. A Christmas festival was first inaugurated in the fourth century. We can say that this first Christmas festival took place in the year 354 in Rome. This shows us particularly how, in a time less critical than ours, those confessing to Christianity were suffused with the justly divined knowledge that they should elicit ever new fruits from the great Christian tree of life. For this reason we may honor one of the outer symbols of Christmas, the Christmas tree, such as we have here before us. In the coming days countless people will place a tree in their midst, the significance of which spiritual science feels called upon to impress ever more deeply on the hearts and souls of human beings. We might almost come to contradict temporal evolution were we simply to become attached to this symbol. It would be wrong to believe that this symbol is an ancient one, and the belief might easily lodge in the modern mind that the graceful midwinter fir tree was a custom established in antiquity. There is a picture showing a Christmas tree in Luther's living room. Drawn only in the 19th century, this gives the impression that Christmas trees were widespread in Luther's day. This is a completely false impression because across German territories, as elsewhere in Europe, Christmas trees were not yet part of the festival in Luther's time. It is a later emblem, yet it points to something remarkable. Could we not also think of the Christmas tree as a portent of the future, something future-boding? Might people not, over time, come to see in a Christmas tree an image of something far more meaningful and important? Let us turn our gaze to the Christmas tree here, having dispelled all illusion as to its historical origins, and call to mind what has often been brought before us, the holy legend, as it is called. This tells us that when Adam was expelled from paradise, the legend comes in many guises, but we will retell it as briefly as possible, he is said to have brought with him three seeds from the tree of life, whereof human beings were not to eat having eaten of good and evil from the tree of knowledge. When Adam died, Seth took these three seeds and planted them on Adam's grave. A tree grew from those seeds on Adam's grave. It is said in the legend 
that from the wood of this tree several things were made. Moses fashioned his rod from its wood, and later wood from this tree was used to make the cross on Golgotha. One legend then reminds us evocatively of that second tree also standing in paradise. Humans had eaten of the tree of knowledge, and enjoyment of the tree of life was denied them. But a longing for and urge toward this tree remained forever in human hearts, banished from spiritual worlds designated as paradise, into the world of external phenomena, human beings felt in their hearts a desire toward the tree of life. What they were not allowed to have without having earned it, without having evolved toward it, they could gradually attain with the aid of knowledge, reaping the rewards of laboring on the physical plane, working for the maturity and merit to receive the fruits of the tree of life. The three seeds represent for us our longing for the fruits of the tree of life. The legend tells us that the wood of the cross contained elements stemming from the tree of life. Throughout evolution, an awareness has persisted that the brittle wood of the cross contained the germ of a new spiritual life, and that rightly gloried in, from it would grow what can unite human beings with their souls as the fruit of the tree of life, bestowing immortality in the truest sense of the word and kindling the light of soul to illumine their path out of the dark depths of the physical world into the bright heights of spiritual existence, there to partake of immortal life. Without succumbing to illusion, and as sentient human beings rather than as historians, we may allow ourselves to see the Christmas tree as a symbol of that light which must flare up within our souls and that will vouchsafe immortality in spiritual existence. Looking within, we feel ourselves, through our anthroposophical spiritual stream, to be suffused with that force which allows us to look upward into spiritual worlds. There we see in its outer symbolism the Christmas tree we have before us, and we may say, let it be an emblem for the light that should shine and blaze in our souls and bear us up into spiritual worlds. This tree has also, in a way, sprung from darkest depths. People who disparage a non-historical perspective, such as the one just characterized, simply do not realize that something physically described does nonetheless contain deeper spiritual imperatives it may elude the outer eye, E-Y-E, just how remarkable it is that the Christmas tree has embedded itself into the everyday lives of humanity. In a relatively short time, it has become a custom bringing soul, solace, and blessing into worldwide circulation. This may escape our notice. Yet anyone who is aware that outer phenomena reflect spiritual evolution will surely feel that there is possibly a deeper reason for the emergence of the Christmas tree, that it emerges into, onto the physical plane as if from a deep spiritual source, that the appearance of the Christmas tree hails from a deep impetus, invisibly guiding human beings, inspiring even seemingly insensate souls, and inspiring them to allow the light that must shine into world existence to come to outer expression, 
in the form of the beautiful Christmas tree. Once such awareness of wisdom has been awakened, this tree can, through our willing, become an outer emblem of all that is most exalted. If anthroposophy is intended to be wisdom, it should be active wisdom, should suffuse all with wisdom, gilding external impressions and customs. In this way, anthroposophy may perhaps gild the tradition of the Christmas tree, which has become so materialistic and superficial, gradually warming and enlightening hearts and souls by spreading its gold across humanity of the present and the future. Permeated with wisdom, may this tree become one of our most significant symbols, newly emerging into earthly life as if from the dark underground of the soul. If we dig a little deeper and assume that deeper spiritual guidance places its motives into human hearts, it appears not without reason that human beings live out the thoughts implanted by those spiritual guides with deep inwardness around the radiant tree. It has long been the tradition across several European countries that during Advent, the weeks before Christmas, deciduous twigs and branches were collected which would come into leaf or at least sprout on Christmas Eve. Many are the souls in whom an inkling of ever-unconquering victory would dawn, recalling the invincible life that vanquishes death, as the carefully collected twigs and boughs would unseasonably burst into festive life in the warmth of living rooms on the eve of Christ's Mass, at the sun's darkest nadir. This was an old custom, That of the Christmas tree itself is, however, far younger. Where do we first find the custom of a Christmas tree? We recall the striking language of our great German mystics, especially that of Johannes Tauler, who worked in Alsace. Whoever allowed the sermons of Johannes Tauler to affect them with their deep inwardness and boundless reserves of feeling will say, in the days when Tauler was working for the deepening and spiritualizing even the heartening of Christianity, a quite exceptional spirit was circulating, seeking everywhere souls effused with the mystery of Golgotha. When Tauler gave his sermons in Strasbourg, his fiery words penetrated deeply into the souls of those present, creating lasting impressions that would burgeon later in memory, including his wonderful Christmas sermon. He proclaimed that God would be born for humanity three times over, would be thrice-born, once in that we stem from the Father, from the great world all, secondly in that God descended to humanity, assuming the sheaths of human incarnation, and thirdly that Christ will be born in each human soul, able to find that inner potential to unite with divine wisdom and give birth to higher individuality. In all manner of wondrous, festive turns of phrase, did Johannes Tauler express the most profound wisdom in Strasbourg, especially on Christmas Day. This wisdom will have sunk into souls, deeply affecting them and remaining as an echo long afterward. Feelings also have their traditions. What sank into souls long since may work on from century to century. So may those feelings implanted into human souls long ago work onward as do all true feelings suffused with spirit, into eye and hand, 
and may our eyes be inspired through feeling to see in our sensory surroundings the resurrection, the birth of human spirit light. For materialistic thinking it may therefore be a happy coincidence, but for anyone who knows how spiritual guidance throngs our existence, it will be no such mere coincidence. When we hear the first tidings of a Christmas tree inside a house reaching us from Strasbourg in the Alsace, this news came in 1642 and reported how a tree had been brought indoors for the blessing of those who wanted to see in sensory externals an image of the light that can be awakened within through the receiving of spiritual wisdom. We see how badly the German mystics were received by the Church of its day, adhering as it did to external usage in the example of Meister Eckhart, the great forerunner of Johannes Tauler. He was declared a heretic after his death, the Church having neglected to do so during his lifetime. Those fiery words from Johannes Tauler, too, issuing from a truly Christian heart, met with little recognition. In just such a way as superficial Christianity, which does not really believe in the Spirit, related to Johannes Tauler and Meister Eckhart, do we, likewise, hear of a Christmas tree from a spiritual opponent who opined that trees were mere child's play and that people should instead head to places where the correct doctrine could be heard. Only slowly at first did the Christmas tree custom take hold. We encounter it in isolated places in mid-Germany around the 18th century. Only toward the 19th century does the Christmas tree become an ever more frequent spiritual enhancement at Christmas, a newfound symbol of something that had been surviving throughout the centuries. For those who could truly feel not merely the sheen of verbose Christianity, but the radiance of true spiritual Christianity, it had always been the case that the Christmas tree could elicit wondrous human feelings. You will be easily convinced of the Christmas tree's recent emergence when you note that the greatest German-speaking poets wrote nothing about it. Had it been prevalent earlier, Klopstock, for instance, would have waxed poetical about this emblem. Let this Christmas tree, therefore, be a pledge that emblems of the most exalted and mighty may arise anew. Such symbols can emerge in our souls, particularly when we feel the spiritual truth of the awakening I within our human souls, that intrinsic I, capital, which senses the spiritual bond from soul to soul and feels this to a heightened degree when human beings of noble intent work together. Just one example will be mentioned here from which we can see how the light of the Christmas tree shone into the soul of a great leader of humankind. In 1822, Goethe, whom we have so often encountered when studying spiritual life in the light of anthroposophy, felt at the end of his Faust that only Christian symbolism could express his poetic intentions. He felt that Christianity must inspire the most noble connections between human souls, that it must found bonds of brotherly love, not based on blood, but between souls devoted to the Spirit. We feel the impetus still inherent in Christianity as potential when we think about the conclusion of the Gospels. 
From the cross on Golgotha, Christ Jesus gazes down upon his mother. She looks to her son, and he bestows community on a humanity previously based only in blood relations. A mother was once given a son, a son a mother, through bonds of blood. These blood relations were not to be abolished through Christianity. They remain. But in addition, spiritual connections are to be forged, spiritual bonds that irradiate blood relations with spiritual light. This is the reason why Christ Jesus said from the cross, Woman, behold, this is your son. And to the disciple he said, Behold, this is your mother. The bonds formerly only founded in blood were bequeathed from the cross as spiritual ties. Where spirit was alive, among noble-minded spiritual communities, Goethe always felt compelled to seek the true spirit of Christianity. He felt the need to allow this Christian spirit to flow from heart to eye, E-Y-E. In 1822 he had cause to do so. The people of the Principality, to whose well-being Goethe had dedicated so much energy, had come together to found a school for the children of citizens, a civic or citizens' school. This was simultaneously a present from the people to the Prince of Weimar. Goethe knew no better way to celebrate this small event, betokening spiritual progress, then, before Christmas, to invite a number of people to contribute individual pieces of poetry, each according to their ability. He gathered these poems written by townsfolk into a booklet and wrote an introduction. Carl Alexander, later to become the Grand Duke, was at the time a three-year-old boy, and he was to hand this booklet of collected poems to Prince Carl August under the Christmas tree. By 1822, Christmas trees had already become a constant symbol. With this humble deed, Goethe showed that the Christmas tree had become for him an emblem of feelings and perceptions toward spiritual progress, both small and large. In the poetic introduction to the little book, now in the Weimar Library, Goethe sang the praises of the Christmas tree as a symbol in the following way, quote, Shining trees, radiant trees, all around exuding peace, dancing in their gleaming brightness, spark in every heart a lightness, such a joyous celebration and such dazzling decoration. We look up and down amazed, our adoring hearts, they all are raised. But, O oh Prince, if e'er you meet an evening blessing you so sweet, lights and flames and purest ether gleaming, gathering all together, all that you have e'er achieved, all those present who in you believe, gifted with exalted sight, may you feel supreme delight. Quote. This poem by our Goethe may be among the first Christmas poems. When speaking in spiritual science about emblems, we may also mention that symbols rising up from the unconscious or the subconscious into human souls appear over the course of time gilded and clothed in wisdom. So we see the first Christian Christmas celebrated in 4th century Rome. We must almost regard it as an act of God that into an ancient festival celebrating the sun's deepest nadir, when much of Middle and Northern Europe celebrates the winter solstice, came the festival of Christ's Mass. 
not through exoteric, materialistic expediency, but inwardly, like a mysterious act of God. Do not believe that across Middle and Northern Europe the intention was to align Christmas with the old celebrations, simply to placate folk. Christianity gave birth to Christmas. Precisely the acceptance of Christmas in northern regions shows the deep spiritual association between people, their symbols, and Christianity. Whereas in Armenia Christmas did not become a custom, and even in Palestine there has been a certain dismissiveness, it was quickly assimilated among people in Europe. Let us really try to understand the Christmas festival from an anthroposophical perspective and summarize the Christmas tree as an emblem. Throughout the year when we gather here, let us feel words clamoring from spiritual sources, words which are not mere words but spiritual forces acting ever more powerfully upon us, rendering our souls citizens of eternity. All year long we gather here so that words, the Logos in its manifold forms, may resound in this room, that Christ is evermore with us and when we meet the Spirit of Christ nears and moves us, so that our words become suffused with the Spirit of Christ. When we speak of things and are conscious that our words are like winged bearers of revelation from the Spirit to humankind, we allow spirit words to flow into our souls. Yet we know that the spirit word cannot be fully grasped by us and cannot be all that it is intended to be if it is only received as superficial or abstract knowledge. We know that spirit can only be what it is intended to be once it generates warmth, enabling our souls to expand, to experience being extended through warmth, ultimately pouring out into all-world phenomena. We learn to feel at one with this spirit drenching all manifestation. We feel that in us strength must become life, life that throngs our ears with spirit words, so that we, when the time is right, place in our midst a symbol to fortify and appeal to our souls. Let a new spirit human arise in you that can kindle to warmth and illumine with light the words springing from spiritual sources, welling from spiritual undergrounds toward us. Then we will also feel the importance of which spirit word resounds toward us. Let us feel seriously at a moment such as this what spiritual science can bring us by way of soul warmth and soul light. Let us feel this in the following way. Look at the modern materialistic world with all its commotion of people hurrying to and fro from morning till night, judging and measuring everything in terms of material worth. They do not suspect that behind all this the spirit lives and weaves. People go to sleep of an evening, never imagining that they are anything but unconscious and that they will wake to another day on the physical plane. People go to sleep oblivious after another rushed working day without considering life's meaning. The spiritual seeker who has heard the word of spirit will know something that is not theory nor doctrine. They know that they are given soul warmth and soul light. They also know that were they during the day only to take in images of physical life, 
their lives would become desiccated and barren, and any gains would perish. When you lie down to sleep at night, you enter a world of spirit, diving down with all your soul powers into a realm of higher spiritual beings, toward whose stature your very being is intended to grow. On waking you return, newly strengthened from a spiritual world, and consciously or unconsciously divine spiritual vitality spills out over everything you receive from the physical plane. Out of eternity do you, every morning, rejuvenate what is temporal in your existence. We transform the word of the Spirit into the feeling we can have at eventide. I am not only departing into unconsciousness, but I am immersing myself in a world where the beings of eternity dwell and among whose ranks my own being is intended to belong. I go to sleep with the feeling, onward into spiritual worlds, and I awake with the feeling, forth from the Spirit. We will then be filled with the feeling into which spirit word is transformed when tended here from day to day, from week to week, in a life dedicated to spiritual knowledge. Then will the spirit become life in us. Then will we go to sleep and wake up differently. Once we feel connected with the spirit of the cosmos, feel ourselves every morning anew to be emissaries of the spirit, of the cosmos, once we gradually feel connected with the spirit weaving through and pervading all outer phenomena, then we will also feel when the high sun of summer radiates its life-giving forces toward the earth, how spirit works into external phenomena, and while its outer countenance is turned toward us in the raying of the sun, its inner being is simultaneously receding. Where do we see this spirit of cosmic world creation, announced by Zarathustra as dwelling in the sun, if only the physical rays of the sun reach us? We see this world spirit when we recognize where it sees itself. In truth, the spirit of the cosmos creates its sense organs through which it can see itself during summer. It creates outer sense organs for itself. We must learn to understand that in clothing itself in a garment of green from spring onward, the earth is creating a new countenance. What is this? It is a mirror for the world spirit of the sun. While the sun is sending us its physical rays, the spirit of the cosmos gazes down at earth. What overflows from all plant growth, blossoms, foliage is nothing other than the counter-imagery of the pure, chaste cosmic spirit, which sees itself reflected in its own creation while causing all growth to burgeon forth from the earth. The sense organs of the world spirit exist within the earth's plant cover. As this plant cover withers in autumn, we see how the outer strength of the sun dwindles and how the world spirit's countenance withdraws. If we are rightly prepared, we feel the spirit pulsing throughout the world and within us too. We can also follow the world spirit as it withdraws its countenance from our view. We then feel, when we can no longer rest our gaze on the plant covering, 
how within us the spirit awakens in inverse proportion with the spirit's withdrawal from world phenomena. This awakening spirit becomes for us a guide to the depths into which spiritual life retreats, those depths into whose spirit we entrust the seeds for next spring. There we learn to see spiritually and to reflect as outer life retreats from our physical senses, gradually disappearing from sight. When autumn sadness seeps into our souls, our souls can follow the spirit into dead rock, there to extract forces which will cover the earth anew with sense organs for the cosmic spirit. This is how such human beings felt who grasped the spirit in spirit and who accompanied the world spirit downward with the seeds in winter. When the external sun is at its weakest, radiating least strongly, and when outer gloom is at its darkest, then does the spirit in us, through the spirit from the cosmos to which it has bound itself, unite below with those forces which are at their most visibly perceptible when they are conveying new life to the seeds. In this way, like the power of seeds, do we live downward into the earth, do we literally penetrate the earth. Whereas in summer we turned toward the shining expanses of the air, outward to earth's germinating, thriving and fruiting, so do we now turn to inanimate rocks, yet knowing in this inanimate rock slumbers what will reappear as outer existence. In spirit does our own soul follow the sprouting, flourishing forces as they withdraw from outer view and rest through winter in the mineral earth. Once winter has reached its darkest midpoint and the outer world no longer captivates our attention, we feel spiritually, in the depths into which we too have retreated, how spirit light surges forth, that same spirit light through which Christ Jesus bestowed upon humanity its most mighty onward impetus. We may echo the feelings of those who in ancient times spoke of the need to follow the seeds to where they rest in their winter seclusion, in darkness and gloom, in order to recognize the spirit by its hidden forces. We feel that we are to seek Christ in seclusion, in the solitude that remains dark and gloomy if we have not illumined our souls, which become radiant and shining once we have received the light of Christ into our souls. We then find that with every Christmas we strengthen and fortify ourselves through the power that flowed into humanity in the mystery of Golgotha. In this way we feel with every passing year Christ's impetus strengthening us in our striving. We take from this impetus the surety, the pledge, that from year to year life in us will be fortified and will lead into spiritual worlds where death as we know it in the physical world cannot exist. We can spiritualize and endow with soul what for people of materialistic leaning is no symbol but just an external delight for the senses. We sense reality in this symbol of the tree. We sense the same as Johannes Tauler had in mind when he spoke of Christ being born three times. Once into the eternal Father God, 
who enlivens the world, weaving throughout creation, once as a human being at the start of Christianity, and then ever and again in the souls of those who awaken within themselves the world of spirit. Without this last birth, Christianity would be incomplete and anthroposophy would be unable to encompass the spirit of Christ were it not to understand what it signifies that the word resounding to us year after year should remain no mere theory or doctrine but bring us warmth, light and life so that through this power we bring the vitality of spirituality into the world incorporating it and ourselves into eternity. Such are the feelings we should engender when standing around this symbol of Christmas, feeling ourselves delving beneath the earth into the frosty depths of the seemingly dead world, not only boding, but knowing that spirit wakens new life from death. At whichever stage we find ourselves, we can echo the feeling felt by initiates throughout all ages, who really descended on this night of consecration, to the place where the midnight sun, the spirit sun of the sanctified midwinter, is seen, and where it calls forth the burgeoning growth and life of spring from the seeming death of rock. We feel united with the forces reigning throughout the world, even when they have physically withdrawn behind frost and dimness of light. We wish to feel this in common with all those who around Christmas tide truly commemorate the spiritual sun, the sun of Christ, behind the physical sun. Let us reflect that feeling, so that we gradually ascend to an experience and thence to vision of what human beings are capable of seeing when they cultivate ever new forces connecting them with the Spirit. Let us close these reflections with a verse we spoke several years ago when celebrating Christmas filling our souls with the most vital aspect to which we can be open and which can pour into our souls. Quote, Behold the sun at the midnight hour, build with stones in the lifeless ground. Thus, in decay and in the night of death, find creation's new beginning, young morning's strength. Glory in the heights, the eternal word of God's, shelter in the depths, the powers of peace. In darkness dwelling, create a sun. In matter weaving, know the joy of spirit. The end of Lecture 11